Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 29? Jeremiah chapter 29. We're going to read these words, which are essentially a letter from Jeremiah, who is in Jerusalem, and he is writing to those who have already been taken into exile in Babylon. This is the letter that he sends to them. This is not the complete exile that's going to happen. This is the first of the exiles that will happen for Israel. But Jeremiah begins to instruct the people, this is what life is going to look like for you in a foreign land in Babylon. So I'm going to read from Jeremiah chapter 29, beginning in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dr- those who dream dreams, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call on me and come to me and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all of your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Let's pray together. Father, help us get oriented around the same landscape that we share with exiled Israelites in Babylon. I pray that you would lead us. I pray that you would guide us. I pray that you would um, instruct us in how we are to live as sojourners in this land and where we find ourselves. Would you do that in Jesus' name? Amen. Well, as many of you guys know, Our family lived in India. We graduated from seminary. We moved to India. We were there for two years doing business development. And if you've ever been to India, seen pictures of India, you will know that it is very difficult to drive in India. There are no stoplights. There are no lines on the roads. You've got people, animals, shepherds, rickshaws, cars, trucks. Very, very difficult place to drive. It's disorganized chaos. But after you've taken one too many rickshaws, you're ready to buy a car, you're ready to start driving. I did. I hit two people which I actually think is pretty good, two people in two years. That was you know, kind of a good record for me. But after you've learned to drive, then you realize you have to navigate this city, and it's a city of 8 million people in Bangalore, and there are no road signs. There are no road signs in a city of 8 million people. You just, when someone's telling you where to go, they say, go a little ways and turn left at the temple, which could describe any block in Bangalore. I mean, it was maddening. So what we did is we got ourselves a road map, not because we could use the roads, but because we could look at it and say, if we continue on this road, we're going to take our 15th left, 
and that's going to get us where we need to be. And so that roadmap, it became essential to us. I want us to think about Jeremiah's letter to the exiles as a roadmap. Any decent roadmap is going to tell us three things. It's going to tell us where we are, it's going to tell us where we're going, and it's going to tell us how to get there. Those three things are good for any roadmap, and that's actually precisely the three things that Jeremiah gives us in this letter to operate as that roadmap. I just want to look at each of those three in turn. Number one, where are we now? Now, you're taking a road trip with your family, you get in the car, you get about 30 minutes down the highway, and someone needs to go to the bathroom. So you pull off to a rest stop, and while you're there and you're waiting, you look at the map that's there, and a rest stop road map is only as good as the big blue star that says you are here. It helps locate you where you are on the map. You realize, okay, I'm 30 minutes from my house. I haven't gone anywhere. This is great. Well, that sums up what's happening in verse 4. Look at verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So Jews are no longer in Jerusalem. Daniel and his friends and thousands of others have been exiled. They've been taken out of Jerusalem and now they've been, clo- they've been placed very close to Baghdad. If you've ever traveled overseas, you know how disorienting it can be. Shoot, if you've ever traveled outside the South, you know how disorienting it can be to be in the North. I mean, you get there and nobody knows what grits or sweet tea are. Nobody in the North wears sunglasses inside. I mean, they say things like, use guys and pop and Clemson. It's just very disorienting to be outside of your home. So imagine Israelites, they've been taken against their will 500 miles from their hometown and dropped in a completely different empire. The language is different, the dress is different, the food is different, the gods are different, the values are different. Overnight, Israelites have become foreigners and aliens and strangers in a land that is not their own. It's extremely disorienting. But do you know that that's exactly how the Bible describes us as New Testament believers? That's the language that it uses to describe who we are in Christ. Before we came to Christ, we were completely at home in the world. What the world valued, we valued. What the world celebrated, we celebrated. What the world was afraid of, we were afraid of. We were at one with the world. We were at peace with the world. We shared everything we found in the world. But now that we have been born again in Christ, we wake up to a strange and a foreign land. We see billboards that worship beautiful bodies. We watch co-workers at work that will do anything to get ahead in their career. We live in a system that believes anytime Hallmark says that it's a holiday, we should spend money we don't have to get things that we don't need. And that was us before, but now it's not us, or we don't want it to be us, and something does not resonate between us and the culture that we are in. We're disoriented. This is not quite our home. The Apostle Peter, he writes to us and he says this, Beloved, 
I urge you as sojourners and exiles. You are sojourners and exiles, and I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Peter is saying to us, this is not your home. You do not belong here. If you were home, there would be nothing to abstain from. If you were home, there would be nothing to defend yourself against, but you are not home, and not everyone who smiles at you is your friend. There's a big, fat, blue star on the word exile in verse 4, and it says, you are here. And so when Jeremiah writes, dear exiles... The New Testament church responds, yeah, that's us too. We are also exiles in a foreign land. So we're getting our orientation in the map. We know where we are. We're somewhere on the Babylonian beltway, and we know that we're not going anywhere anytime soon. But what's our goal? Like, what direction are we headed in? Where do we want to be? Where are we aiming? And Jeremiah says, that's very easy. You are going home. That's the direction that you're headed in. That's where you want to be. Look at verse 10. When the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Now, we've made this parallel before in the book of Jeremiah. At a certain date, the former Israel, the Israel we read about now, is going to return to the former Jerusalem. They're going to make their way back to physical Jerusalem. And us as believers, at a certain date, the new Israel, you and I, will find our way back to the new Jerusalem, which will descend out of heaven when Jesus returns. You and I are in Babylon, but we are on our way home to the new Jerusalem. Now verse 11 is meant to bolster our faith for where we're going. This is what God says to these exiles and to us as exiles. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now I asked this question last week from Jeremiah 26, and it was simply... What happens when we try to be decent Christians and do everything that God says and we still end up like the prophet Uriah, extradited, executed, and dumped in a mass grave? What happens then? What is God doing then? And somebody talked to me afterwards and they said, you know, it would have been a lot more simple to ask the question, is God good? That's the question that's at the bottom of that original question. That's the question that dogs us and haunts us as believers, is God good and can I trust what he is doing? My experiences, my impressions, my circumstances, they might be crying out to mistrust God and what he's doing in my life, but here we have an infallible black and white God saying to us, my plan for you is wholeness. My plan for you is a future. My plan for you is hope. Trust me. I will lead you into these things. We know where we are. We're aliens. We're strangers. We're exiles. 
We know where we're going. We know that God wants to bring us to this future and this hope. He wants to bring us home. But if that's where we are and that's where we're going, how on earth are we supposed to get there? I think the instructions in Jeremiah chapter 29 are really surprising. When you wake up in a foreign land and you're trying to get back to heaven, what are you supposed to do on earth? I think we might naturally think that if our home is this ethereal entity in heaven, then our best work is spiritual and not physical, right? We should surround ourselves with spiritual practices of prayer and fasting and evangelism. These are the things that count, and the things of this world, they simply don't count. I mean, this kind of serves as like an eschatological Y2K, right? If I know I'm going home and I know my home is heaven, then as Christians, we should stockpile tuna fish and get in our basements with our hymnals and wait for Jesus to return. That would show a watching world we're serious about heaven, right? I'm not participating in any of this. I'm in my basement. I'm singing A a Mighty Fortress is Our God. I I could care less what happens to the city of Columbia and what's going on in the world around me. I think that would make the world take notice of believers, and that would be appropriate instructions. But God takes an incredibly different approach In verses 5 through 7, God tells us to make ourselves at home in a place that's not our home. Isn't that really odd? He says, make yourself at home in a place that's not your home. This, This commandment is surprising, but it's actually not new to us. It's not only found in Jeremiah. This is a theme of the Bible that happens from Genesis all the way the New Testament. In Genesis, God told Adam and Eve... I want you to be fruitful. I want you to multiply. I want you to fill the earth. I want you to subdue it. I want you to work with your hands. That was the command given in Genesis. But that command does not get replaced in the New Testament. When we hear the Great Commission to go and make disciples, those commands supplement one another. We are physical bodies. We live in a physical world. We do the work that God has given us and we make disciples along the way. Those commands, the, the, the commandment to Adam and Eve and the Great Commission, they go hand in hand in our lives. That's why the New Testament is full of commands like work with your hands. Do honest work. Bring your children up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Show hospitality. These are really physical, earthy, practical commands that actually embody a heavenward life. Christian, do you want to get ready for heaven? Then you have work to do on earth. In this passage alone, we hear about three human endeavors that make up some of our best heavenward work. If we're only looking at Jeremiah 29, we hear these three things. Homemaking, breadwinning, child-rearing. You want to get ready for heaven? These are the three things you set your hand to. Homemaking, breadwinning, child-rearing. I want to look at each of those three just very briefly in closing. Number one, homemaking. Look at verse five. I love this command. It's so simple. Build houses and live in them. Build houses and live in them. Homemaking is key.
kingdom work. There's actually something mysteriously sanctifying in surfing Zillow and apartment therapy. Maybe not for long, maybe just a little bit, but there's something sanctifying in that. A beautiful home, it's a place of rest. It's a place of rejuvenation. It's a place of family. It's a place of creativity. It's a place of hospitality. And all of those things actually bless the city that we live in. And they make us ready to do those very things in heaven forever. Number one, homemaking. Number two, breadwinning. Verse five again. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Basically, if you don't have snap peas and Brussels sprouts in the ground by now, you're disobeying Jeremiah chapter 29. I'm sorry. This is terrible. I'm just kidding. This is talking about our vocations. If it's not agrarian, it's something else. It's how you provide for your family. And what you're hearing from Jeremiah chapter 29 is that God values your work. The work you do with your hands is valuable to God. Isn't there something deeply satisfying in knowing that God is not just pleased with the 20 minutes you may or may not spend reading your Bible before you go to work in the morning, but the 8 to 10 hours you spend laboring to provide for your family? That is pleasing to God. God sees it. He values it. He celebrates it and he receives it back to himself in worship. It is pleasing to God. It blesses our city. It is kingdom work to do well in your vocation. Homemaking, breadwinning, and now number three, he spends the most time with child rearing in verse six. Listen to this. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Church, let's get busy. We got a lot of work to do. We want to multiply. We want to increase. We need to get busy. I've heard people say, the world is so bad, I couldn't justify having kids. I don't want to bring one more child into this word. It's, the world is just absolutely terrible. I couldn't justify doing something like that. And God actually says the exact opposite. He says, the world is so bad, you're living in Babylon for crying out loud. This is a pagan city with a pagan king that cares nothing for me. The world is so bad, I need you to multiply. I want you to make babies. I want you to dilute the decline of the city that you are in. The average family size in America is 3.14. That means that having anything over 1.14 kids in your home is countercultural and it's surprising to other people. You have two or three or more kids, if the Lord wills, it will surprise people in our community. Just this past week, our family went to the beach. We went to Myrtle Beach. It's the off season, so you've kind of got an older crowd and not a family crowd. And so our family of six, we really stood out. I mean, we don't stand out here at Columbia Prez, but we definitely stood out at North Myrtle Beach in September. And we had people walking up to us and making completely inappropriate comments, like a woman stopping my wife on the beach and saying, I love your family. Are you guys Catholic? And it was like, no. Um, We got on the elevator and there was an older couple standing in the back and the husband 
says to the wife way too loudly, good Lord, honey, they have three kids. And his wife said, shh, they have four. (laughs) It's like, we're standing right here. We can hear you. By God's grace, we are trying to grow the believing population in Colombia. From Adam and Eve to Abraham and Sarah to Joseph and Mary to Julie and I to the couples in this church, baby making is kingdom work. Now, if you're in this church and you're single and you feel called to be married and you pray for a spouse and you go on some awkward first dates and you're waiting for God's timing, you're doing kingdom work work. You're doing work that is valuable to God. If you're an empty nester, Jeremiah 29 says part of your job is to nag your kids to get married. If they're called to be married and when they do to spend time with your grandkids. If you're pregnant or trying to get pregnant and you've just gone through the summer in South Carolina, the Lord bless you and keep you You bear in your body and your hormones the curse of the fall and the promise of redemption for Abraham's seed that will number the stars in the heavens. Child-rearing is good and beautiful work. Homemaking, breadwinning, child-rearing, God says these things are actually a blessing to our city and they are the very work of God in our city. I want to close with a line from the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. We studied the book of Hebrews. We saw the great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews chapter 11. And when we studied that chapter, we realized that a lot of the stuff these saints are doing is really practical, physical stuff. I mean, we're not talking about evangelism. We're not even talking about all the time they spent in praying. We're talking about physical things that they did. I mean, by faith, Abel chose the vocation of a shepherd. By faith, Noah, he set about doing carpentry work. He built a boat. By faith, Sarah, she bore a baby. By faith, Isaac, he blessed the kids in his care. And then we hear this summary of the fruit of their labor in Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and aliens on the earth. And then I want you to hear this. For those who say such things, make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. Friends, may our lives be one beautiful, earthy, physical sweaty, tearful, joyful quest to grasp this country that is our own. Let's pray together. God, you call us to roll up our sleeves and you call us to set about doing kingdom work that is a blessing to our city and a preparation for heaven. Would you make us excellent in these things as homemakers, as breadwinners, as those who are seeking your kingdom in rearing our children and pointing them to the Lord? Would that be the stuff of kingdom work in this church and this city we ask in Jesus' name, amen.